If you look in the scriptures, what you'll find uh, is that we as persons are this nexus of uh, body and soul. And what I mean by your body is I mean your physical body, the thing that absorbs the world through your five senses. And by soul, I mean your internals, your thoughts, your feelings. And they're not separate. They're inextricably linked so that if anything happens to your body, it's going to affect your soul. And anything that affects your soul is going to affect your body. There's a book I read recently. It demonstrates this reality. It's called The Body Keeps a Score. Anybody read it? If you really want to torture yourself, read it. Uh, it's a great book. It really is great. Uh, but it's really hard. <laughs> Uh, because what the author, is, he's a psychiatrist, his, his name is Bessel van der Kolk, he's, a, uh, he's an MD, and um, he's spent his life learning about how trauma reshapes both the body and the brain. And so he explores treatments and he offers pathways to recovery, and so he tells lots and lots of stories that are really hard to read. But one of the stories that he tells is about a Vietnam vet, uh, this uh, former a soldier, his name's Bob. And when Bob returned from the war initially, he had these unrelenting nightmares and he had insomnia. But what was even more troubling is that when his children would cry, it triggered him to remember the Vietnamese children who had been brutalized during his time of service. So he went to the hospital, he was so out of control. The only treatment that they could think of that they could give him was to treat uh, him for psychosis. But Dr. Vanderkolk had another idea. His idea for treatment was to treat him for his trauma, and he wanted, he wanted to get Bob to be able to tolerate his feelings without being, uh, becoming overwhelmed. And fortunately, uh, this occurred, and Bob was able to finish grad school. He was able to reconnect with his family. But Bob's journey wasn't over. Eighteen years later, he had reserved his initial treatment he needed treatment again because he was sending his son, the one who was crying before that was triggering him, he was now sending that son off to military service from the exact same armory that he left from when he went to Vietnam. So he went back to see Dr. Vanderkolk, and this time Bob dealt with a whole different series of things. It wasn't around the Vietnam War. This time he was dealing with childhood trauma of, of dealing with a, having a violent father and having a schizophrenic younger brother who he left when he went off to war and he felt guilty for leaving his younger brother alone with his father. And again, now he's able to experience these painful memories without being overwhelmed because of the treatment that he received. He had a third round of treatment. This happened five years after the second round. It was when he began to experience these episodic paralysis in several parts of his body. And he was beginning to think that he was going to spend his life in a wheelchair. They had built a wheelchair ramp from, his, from the outside of his house into the inside of his house. But he went back and he thought maybe Dr. Vanderkolk could help. The neurologist had no idea what was wrong. They couldn't find anything, but... What Dr. Vanderkolk wanted to do was the same thing he had done before. He wanted Bob to be able to befriend his physical symptoms rather than eliminate them. And so he started, Dr. Vanderkolk had him start working with a masseuse. He had him start taking yoga. I know that sounds hippy-dippy to some of you, but that's what was going on with Bob. But what these things did, the masseuse and taking yoga and being with Dr. Vanderkolk, what happened was he began to have this sense of bodily pleasure and mastery that he had not had since he was a young man. 
He's still affected by the mysterious condition, but his life was far less dictated by his pain than it was before his treatment. See, what you see with Bob is this nexus of body and soul working together that needed healing. And I think it's a good illustration of how our bodies are woven together. I mean, you can think of others. You can think of other ways, like when you're stressed, you grind your teeth at night. You can tell yourself all you want, I'm going to quit grinding my teeth, I'm going to quit grinding my teeth, I'm going to quit grinding my teeth, but it's involuntary. When you're working out in healthy rhythms, you're better able to handle stressful times. You guys have experienced that. When you're sad, you eat foods that make you even more sad. Can I say Little Caesars with the Zap Pack for just a second? But here's the thing. This is the way that God made us. He made us from dust, the physical, and he breathed life into us, the soul. And then now the decay of our body-soul nexus is decaying because of sin. Our bodies die. Our, our souls react in unhelpful ways to the world and to people around us. So we're sick. We're broken. And we need the healing from a physician. And this healing is the metaphor that's used in our text today. So if you came to church today and you're sick, either sick in body or sick in soul, then this text is for you. So let's read James chapter 5, verse 13. This is actually our last, this is the last bit of uh, old James today. Verse 13 is, anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is any one among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wonders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word of the Lord. James is really clear in these eight verses that we receive healing through prayer. And then he gives us four scenarios. The first one is in verse 13, praying for yourself. The second one is verses 14 and 15, praying with elders. The third is in verses 16 to 18, praying with sinners. And the fourth one is in verses 19 and 20, praying with strays. All right, the first one, praying for yourself. You see, right there off the bat, we're called to pray for ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot easier time praying for other people than praying for myself. And he says, if you're suffering, you should pray. If things are going great, you should pray. The translation is, there's no time when God does not invite us to himself. I mean, think about that. God wants to commune with you in your suffering. He's not overburdened by it. And in fact, what communion with God does to your suffering is that it sanctifies your pain. Praying in your suffering keeps you from utter despair. Now, it doesn't keep you from despair. It doesn't keep you from suffering. But it keeps you from utter despair. 
the other circumstance, being cheerful, is another occasion to pray. It might not seem obvious on the surface, but it's important to pray when things are going good. Because if you don't, you can become delusional and think that the good things in your life are the result of your efforts. Instead of realizing what James told us way back in chapter 1 when he said that all good and perfect gifts come from above. So you put these two things together, pray in your suffering and pray when times are going good. In your sorrows and in your joys, you begin to see that we angle our whole life to God. And if you do, you'll be healed. You'll be healed from despondency in your suffering and you'll be healed from arrogance when your lives are pleasant. But then James makes a move from praying for yourself in verse 13 to having others pray for you when you're physically ill. You see it in verse 14 and 15? He instructs those who are sick to call for the elders. And the elders come and they anoint the person who's physically ill with oil and they pray for them. So let's break that down piece by piece. I mean, when I, I got to the, the couple commentaries I read this week, it was like, if there was this much commentary for verses 13 to 20, this much was for verses 14 and 15. That's all any of them wanted to talk about. But I was like, I, I was, we're going to spend some time on it, but we're not going to spend all our time on it. So let me break it down piece by piece for just a second. You'll probably have some, some, some questions, and, and we, can, we can talk about them later. But let's do the first one. Let's talk about elders first. Notice it's not just anyone in this passage who prays for healing. It's the elders. See, the elders is a position in the New Testament church as opposed to just older church members. See, elders were the permanent local leaders of each church. You see it in Acts 15 where Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, had its own elders who decided doctrinal matters. You see, Paul, when he plants churches, he then leaves them in the hands of elders, Acts 14 and 20. You see Paul talking to the young pastor, Titus, who's setting up churches in Crete, and he tells Titus the first thing he's to do in Crete is to raise up elders. And you see qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5. But when you look at, at James chapter 5, verse 14, and many other passages in the New Testament, you see that the point of the leadership of the elder is not to wield power for their own gain, but it's to is for, it is for them to use their position for the welfare of the people under their care. See, in this case, they're called to pray for the sick. So it raises a question. Who are your elders? I mean, we have them in our church. I'm what our, our, our sphere of the church calls a teaching elder. I'm a pastor. And Paul and Adams, who, who did our confession of sin earlier, but, uh, Phil and uh, Bryce are our other elders. And again, these just aren't older Christians. These, are, these elders are for a local church, a bounded set of believers in a specific geography that James mentions. And, and they play an important role in our lives. You might say, well, Marsh, who do you call? <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, them. That's who I would call. I, I'm going to get sick and I'm going to need their prayer too. And elders play an important role in our lives. And one of the roles they, they play is that they come and they pray for you. When you need healing. Another place, another thing that you see in this text is that what's effective is not the elders in and of themselves. It's the prayer and faith of the elders. 
It says they bring oil, but the oil isn't the powerful element. It's the faith of the elders. The only faith that the sick person shows in this text is by asking for the elders to come pray. And if the elders do pray with faith, the text says, do you see it? Do you see it in verse 14? The text says that they will be raised up. Now, some who are prayed for by the elders and anointed with oil, they will rise from the sickness in their life at that point in time because of the prayers of the, others, of the elders. But then others are going to raise at a later date. Others will rise when the Lord Jesus comes, when he raises all the dead. See, God's going to number your days. All of us are going to die eventually. Even the most faithful Christians suffer a final instance. I mean, think about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' beloved cousin, and Jesus let him die. Jesus didn't raise him from the dead. You have Paul who prays in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 to have a thorn removed from his flesh, and God didn't answer his prayer. He let it remain. But you got to remember, Jesus was comfortable with people having just a little bit of faith. That's why he holds up a mustard seed of faith as something that's effective. So yeah, Jesus doesn't tolerate an absence of faith, but he can handle prayers that are made with some faith. Even if it's not strong, even if it's not perfect. Brother and sister, this is so important. A friend of mine, uh, he had a, a, his father when he was in high school, uh, got cancer and he ended up dying from cancer. He was raised in a tradition that did kind of these kinds of healings all the time. It was very commonplace. And they put a lot of emphasis on the effectiveness being the prayers of the effectiveness being the faith of the, of the dad who was sick and the mom. Well, the dad ended up dying. So you can only imagine the kind of damage that's been done. See, healing is a gift of grace. It's not a reward for strong faith. God doesn't owe us anything. Moreover, we should allow the hope of our future bodily resurrection, not just our souls going to Jesus, be a real comfort for us where we're not healed in this life. See, we will be raised up. It's the last part, verse 15, it closes, verses 14, 15, close with a curious line, at least to me, in verse 15, it says, if he has committed sin, he'll be forgiven. It's like, golly, the guy's physically sick, and now you're trying to, like, convict him of sin. Gosh, I mean, kick him while he's down, why don't you, you know? Now, is he sick because of his sin? Well, lots of passages refute that. I mean, Job, clearly, if you read the book, it, it will show you that his illness was not the result of his personal sin. Jesus, in John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, the disciples ask, they say, Jesus, is this guy blind because of his sin or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. See, it's, all this is because in the days of the Old Testament, in the days of Jesus, the culture had over-spiritualized sickness. See, the assumption was that all tragedy and disease were the direct consequences of sin. But today, what do we do? We de-spiritualize illness, don't we? We think everything's a result of microbes and defective genes. We deny that there's a link between sin and illness, but although our sin may not cause an illness, there may be a link between the two. So in some ways, we need to re-spiritualize illness without overemphasizing it. So don't neglect medical care. 
That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that we need to see that there's power in prayer and we need to use illness as a chance for self-reflection. See, maybe we have the illness we have because of how we've treated our bodies. And so being sick is a chance to repent. Maybe, maybe we, we have an illness because we've allowed anxiety to rule our lives instead of the peace of Christ and we need to repent. See, there's something about being sick that opens you up to seeing your need for Jesus in all facets of your life. See, these two verses, verses 14 and 15, they're a jolt to many of us. Many Christians, especially in our tradition, and especially in the Western world, we're very skeptical of this kind of healing ministry. To us, it seems unscientific. It seems naive. We fear disappointment, so we neglect the practice and we miss out on the opportunity of witnessing God do miracles. We're also prideful. <laughs> we'll pray for ourselves, but to ask others, especially our leaders, to come and pray for us, it seems embarrassing, doesn't it? But there's healing to be had in this situation. There's another situation that James gives us, starts in verse 16 and goes through verse 18. And he says that, and it comes right on the, on the back of this forgiveness of sin for the sick person. But now he's going he's to continue to talk about sin in verse 16, but he's going to give a different scenario. In this scenario, he says that all in the church, not just those who are sick, all in the church ought to confess their sins to other fellow believers. And they should do so that they might be prayed for and they might receive healing. One of my favorite books is a book called Life Together. Life Together is written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor, theologian, who was martyred for trying to take down Hitler during World War II. It's an absolute goldmine. And in it, here's what he says. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. And the more isolated a person the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. But confession to a fellow brother or sister destroys this deadly autonomy. It pulls down the barrier of hypocrisy and it allows the free flow of grace in the community. See, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing, this repeated free flow of grace flowing, not just from staff to congregants, not just from elders, deacons, deaconesses to congregants, but to all of us, to each of us. But notice, it's not just the confession that makes this powerful. What's powerful is the prayer that follows the confession. See, we pray for each other. You, 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 if you're broken and, and, you're, and you're in sin, you can't heal yourself. You need Jesus mediated to you in the prayers of another brother or sister in Christ to give you what you cannot give yourself, and that's healing. But do you see there's a requirement for these prayers to be powerful and effective? You see in verse 16, the requirement is the righteous. And that word righteous is intimidating, isn't it? <laughs> it's for, it has this forbidding ring to it. It seems to count so many of us out until we consider who he holds up in verse 17 and 18 as the model. He holds up Elijah. If you don't know much about Elijah, let me tell you a couple quick things about him. Elijah had a very up and down career as a prophet. 
We saw one of his, the ups of his ministry here in our reading. But one day, this is a good moment, he stood up to the prophets of Baal. And the next day, he fell into the depths of depression. One day, he stood up to the evil foreign dignitaries. The next day, they threatened him and he ran off. One day, he was selfless. The next day, he was filled with self-pity. You know what that sounds like to me? Me? And that's why James says that he is a man like us. Good days, bad days. And when we look at Elijah's prayers in the scriptures, here's what you find. You find that they're simple. You'll find that they're brief. You find that they get to the point. You'll find that they aren't very complicated. You'll find that they have this restful confidence that God is near and that he hears. You'll find that they're really honest. He was terribly honest. I mean, he accused God of not caring for this woman and her son. Did you catch that earlier? So if someone confesses their sin to you, don't get intimidated. Just pray for them. Just pray that they would experience freedom from guilt and shame. Pray that they'd have the ability to walk in new obedience and then give them a great big hug and tell them to go on with their life. See, there's healing that can happen here. It happened, all of us need to confess our sins. All of us need to hear the confession of sins. The last healing is in verses 19 and 20. I know it doesn't talk about prayer directly in those two verses. I know like it seems like it's just this tack on at the end of the book, you know. It seems like it's out of place from what we've been talking about, but there's some links. You know, right there in verse 19, he starts with anyone among you. Well, he used that same phrase, anyone among you, in verses 13 and then again in 14. And then if you think about it, it does kind of flow. I mean, he's building on this discussion on the forgiveness of sin of the sick person in verse 15. He's building on the confession of sin in verse 16. And now he's talking about the person who strays from the community in verses 19 and 20. And the person's kind of like Jonah, isn't it? I mean, Jonah ran, so what did God do? God sent a storm, and God sent a fish. Now, God might do that for you if you run from him, but it's much more likely he's going to send a person instead. That's what the text says. It says that that, that God could send a, a brother or sister from the community to come find you and to lovingly inquire about the state of your life. And I say that very carefully because there's so much we don't know about other people. So we've got to be careful not to be judgmental. We also ought not to assume too much because what a backsliding, straying Christian looks like isn't a whole lot different than a non-believer. See, the only thing that we can really see is a profession of faith and then some behavioral clues like church attendance But just because someone says they're a Christian and just because someone is living a somewhat moral life that may include church attendance doesn't mean that they're a Christian. So something's off to you. Pursue your brother, pursue your sister, and just ask what's going on. And what you might find out is that the person that you've patiently and lovingly converted, the the person you've patiently and lovingly confronted gets converted. 
See, that's what our text says. It says that you will save their soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. So what a privilege to be called to this work. I mean, it's really scary to engage in the work of confrontation, even when you just, even when you don't nail someone down for their sin, but you just say, how are you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. It seems scary to many of us because we're the ones doing the pursuing. We're the ones initiating in this, in this scenario. But I want you to notice, unlike verses 14 and 15 that are about the elders coming in praying for healing, this is just like verse 16 where everyone confesses their sin to one another. What we find here is that it's everyone's job to lovingly confront one another. Not just my job, it's all of ours. So if you don't see someone in worship for a long time, invite them to lunch. If someone's in your small group and they start ghosting, they quit coming around, go check in on them. Because this is all of our work, this work of spiritual reclamation. Now this paints a, a really, put, puts a really high bar in our community, doesn't it? <laughs> We're practicing all these things. Yeah, we're, we're, we're praying in our suffering. We're, we're, we're praying when, we, when, when, when things are going well. We ask for prayer when we're sick. We're uh, creating pockets of protection for other people to confess their sin. And then we confess our unconfessed sin. We do this work of confrontation. That's a high bar. But let me tell you, if you're coming here for the first Sunday, you're not going to find this perfectly at our church. We're just trying, and I'm talking just barely trying. We want to do a better job at all this. Even if we played these out perfectly, you know what would happen? It would mean that we think that it's our prayers that are the effective part. But what is the effective part is Jesus himself. And you begin to see some shadows of Jesus here, don't you? You see them lingering over the text. You see it with Elijah when James says he was a man like us. Now, Elijah is a man like us. He's got this up and down nature in his faith. But Jesus, on the other hand, he was not up and down in his faith. He was totally consistent, always putting his life before his father in prayer. See, Jesus became like us that, in that he had all the temptations we had. He's got a body like we have. He knows what it's like to face brokenness head on. And he knows because he voluntarily chose to become like us. And now he prays for us at all times. And let me tell you, it's his prayers that are powerful and effective. It's his prayers that are going to give you the healing that you really need. But I smell Jesus in another place. I see his shadow in another place. I see, I see his shadow when I see the elders praying for healing. When you see Jesus in the gospel, he comes up on all kinds of sick people. Sometimes these sick people ask for healing. Sometimes their loved ones ask for their healing. Sometimes it's the compassion of Jesus alone that prompted their healing. And in each of these things, they show us what Jesus does for each of us. Because there's going to come a day when Jesus, the great physician, comes to you. And he touches you. And he looks you in the eyes. And he gives you total healing. See, the sin that you keep confessing that you don't think will ever go away, no matter how much you confess it to other people and other people pray for you, it'll finally be eradicated. The physical malady that you struggle with day in and day out, even if elders or others come in and pray for you, is finally going to be straightened out. The mental illness that you can't shake will be a thing of the past because Jesus will heal you completely. 
See, Jesus, the great physician, is going to come one day, as surely as the sun came up this morning, and he's going to heal you. And so in the meantime, let's pray. Let's pray for some of that healing to leak into this day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, make us this kind of community. Lord, we know that it'll be nothing short of your Holy Spirit at work in us that does this work. Otherwise, we will sink into despair. Lord, we will suffer alone. We will stay hidden in our shame and our guilt. We will, we will stray from you. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.